Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight's topic is uh, the science behind supplements, and it is brought to you by Equithrive. When was the last time you stood in the feed store aisle looking at shelves full of supplements? They promise everything from maintaining healthy joints, managing ulcers, to producing shiny coats and healthy hooves. But does science back up their claims, and how can you decide which supplements are right for your horse? Well, tonight we're going to get some help from our experts. We are joined by Dr. Ashley Watts of Texas A&M and Dr. Claire Tunis of Summit Equine Nutrition. Welcome, doctors. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> So, Dr. Watts, let's start with you a little bit. You're a surgeon. Can you tell us uh, what your experience is with supplement research and science? Yeah, so personally, I've um, conducted one um, supplement uh, experiment. What it was was a clinical trial where we enrolled horses that had hind limb lameness. Um, that hind limb lameness had to block to that horse's lower hock joint. So those are the joints that are typically affected when a horse is said to have hock arthritis or needing hock injections. So horses that needed their hocks treated or their hocks injected because of lameness were eligible to enroll in the trial. Um, and then we enrolled them in the trial. All the horses got their hocks injected. And then the owners were sent home with a bucket of supplements. And that supplement was unlabeled. It just had a single number on it that corresponded with that horse's number in the study. And we didn't know which uh, treatment the horse was getting. Was it the placebo or was it the active molecule that we were testing, which is resveratrol? Um, obviously, the owners didn't know. And of course, the horses didn't know either. Um, so the owners took that bucket home and fed the supplement twice a day for four months. And then we saw the horses back um, in our hospital and repeated the lameness exam and assessed their lameness both objectively with a computer-based system as well as subjectively just by our eye. And we asked the owners a series of questions, including did they think the horse was better, worse, or the same? It turns out the horses that were in the resveratrol group were significantly better both by the objective computer-based system as well as by the owner's opinion. So it was about 86% of owners thought the horses were better when they'd been on the supplement, whereas the placebo was only 50% thought the horse was still better four months after the hawks were injected. So this was this is my only experience in um, supplement research. But it was pretty cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we found a, a treatment effect um, uh, in a randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial with, with an oral supplement that you can find at the store. Mm -hmm. And were you surprised by the results when they came back? Well, of course, you um, don't do a study if you don't think it's going to work, right? Like <laughs> We had um, evidence from lab animal species and some evidence from randomized clinical trials in people that resveratrol is useful as an anti-inflammatory and useful at reducing the progression of osteoarthritis. Um, so we did expect there to be a treatment effect, but of course you never really know until you test it. So, so yeah, I was anxious when we were getting the results and unblinding because um, you, you of course want it to work, but there's nothing you can do at that stage. You already have all the data. Um, so it was pretty exciting to not only complete a clinical trial in client-owned horses with naturally occurring lameness, but also to find um, an actual effect of the treatment we were testing. It was pretty exciting. And Dr. Tuning, so as an equine nutritionist, I'm, I'm sure you come across supplementation quite a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in that role with supplements? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you can imagine, I run, <laughs> run into them a lot, and, often lot, and oftentimes lots of them being fed to the same horse. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, some people um, go from one extreme of like they never give a supplement because they either don't believe in them or they're so overwhelmed by the range of supplements that are out there that they just feel that it's better not to do anything than to do something and get it wrong. Um, then you have the other end where you've got people doing five or six things. I, you know, it's not uncommon for me to get a laundry list of um, products that are being fed and, and sometimes with duplicative ingredients. And so part of what I do is kind of go through and um, and uh, 
try and you know get rid of some of the things with duplicative ingredients. And it's always interesting to me to really listen. One of the one of the things I always ask people is, oh, why are you feeding that? What motivated you to pick supplement A and put that in your horse's ration? And to hear what the re the reason for that was. Sometimes it's you know that they, they did have a problem and they thought it might be good, or um, you know it was recommended by a friend or what have you. Um, and and sometimes those decisions they've they've done a good job, and other times you know sometimes they've misunderstood you know what their horse really needs and what this product actually does. Um, another problem I see quite often is um, you know the amount of the ingredients in the products may not actually be enough to do the thing that they've purchased the product to do. So that's that's often something I end up helping people with is to um, kind of wade through all the products out there and and get to products that hopefully will, you know, possibly help with the issues that they're, that they're seeing. Well, we have a bunch of uh, horse owners listening live who are looking for just that sort of help. So let's go ahead and jump into our questions. I want to give everyone a quick review of our Ask the Horse live format. We'll be starting with the questions that people submitted during registration. If you have a question that you would like to ask live or you would like a clarification on one of the doctor's responses, you can uh, enter that into the chat window in front of you if you're listening on your computer. We're going to do our best to get to as many questions as possible over the next 50 minutes or so. So let's go ahead and get started. And Dr. Watts, I'm going to start with you. We have a question from Benny Lynn in South Carolina, and she says that her vet is not a big supporter of supplements. Do they work? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I completely understand where her vet is coming from. Um, and I think what Dr. Toons has already said is sometimes horses are not are on so many supplements, it just seems crazy. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it might push you away from using any or recommending any of them. Um, for me, uh, I guess my answer really is if there is, is proof, if there's um, an experiment, some science behind it that makes reasonable sense that it's going to have an effect in the horse, if, especially if it's been tested in the horse and been shown to work, um, then there's there's no reason not to try it and see if it helps your horse. Um, but um, outside of things that don't have proof, I guess I'm kind of with your veterinarian, and um, I wonder, you know, do do we really want to add 10, 15, 20 different things? Uh, I guess the answer would be to go to the science. Dr. Tunis, Alice in British Columbia, Canada, wants to know a question about balancing a horse's diet using supplements. Her question is, how do you supplement properly when your hay source changes regularly and is sometimes untested? Yeah, I think that's a situation that a lot of horse owners uh, face. I mean, the reality is few of us have the luxury of being able to test our hay on a frequent basis to really know what's in it. Um, so in that case, it's you know it's helpful to kind of have a basic understanding of you know most hays what they do have and what they don't have, and so things that you might need to go elsewhere to find. Um, those tend to be some of the trace minerals. So for example, copper and zinc um, can be quite low in certain hays in certain areas of the country, and especially if we're talking about horses that are on restricted diets, so where you're limiting them to three or four flakes of hay a day, then you know, you're not only limiting their calorie intake when you do that, you're also limiting the intake of every other nutrient that comes with those, that hay. So those horses that don't have the luxury of unlimited access to hay or other forages um, definitely can benefit from some additional zinc and copper in the diet. Um, for those horses on a hay-based diet, I also like to add some vitamin E. Vitamin E can be quite low in hay, and we do see vitamin E deficiencies in horses. Um, trying to provide about 50% of the National Research Council um, recommendations for zinc and copper is a, is a good starting place. So for you know, 11, 1200 pound horse, you're looking for 50 milligrams of copper, about 200 milligrams of zinc. And you know, knowing that, you can go away and you'll find there's a lot of products out there that are you know, 10 milligrams of copper, 50 milligrams of zinc, and you know, those probably aren't going to um, do for you what you want them to do. Um, the vitamin E, you're probably looking, you know, a horse is working, you know, about a thousand IUs is a nice, you know, basic place to start for providing your vitamin E. Natural vitamin E is preferable over synthetic. It's better absorbed. 
you may or may not need selenium. That's going to depend on where you are in, in the country. So working with your local extension agents to find out what's a typical selenium profile for hay in your area. Assuming your hay comes from your area, you need to know where your hay comes from. Um, people often say, oh, it comes to me. They always, it comes from Dave's hay store. I'm like, no, no, not where does Dave get it from? <laughs> where does it get grown? Um, you know, cause, I mean, down here in California, it's not uncommon for hay to be coming in from Oregon and Washington State. And they have a very different soil profile. And, you know, those hays are very low in selenium. Hay coming from, you know, Colorado, you know, the Midwest may have higher selenium. So you need to know where your hay comes from. Some grass hays, um, I'm finding quite a few grass hays in California these days with very low calcium, one-to-one um, -one calcium phosphorus ratio or slightly over one-to-one. -one. An ideal would be one and a half to two times to one. So adding something that has some calcium um, is beneficial. And then the last thing is, um, a source of quality protein. Uh, most supplements don't, you know, things with a three, four ounce serving size are not going to have a lot of necessarily crude protein, but you'll find that they add lysine and methionine, the individual amino acids. So, you know, 10 grams of lysine, five grams of methionine, um, you'll, you know, that's sort of a nice, nice place to start just to kind of make sure you're getting those key amino acids. Um, so hopefully that's kind of helpful in helping you uh, find some products that kind of get you where you need to be. So, Dr. Tunis, I'm hearing you say I have some vitamin E and they need the copper and the zinc and maybe selenium. Are are you, do you recommend like, you know, a scoop of vitamin E supplement and a dose of a, a, a copper uh, supplement or, no. or do you recommend an all, like a well-rounded kind of multivitamin for, for these horses. Right. So there are there are well-rounded products out there. There are a couple of companies out there that make nice products um, that are formulated specifically for horses receiving, you know, forage-based diets that aren't getting a lot of concentrates, for example. Um, and they are formulated to balance a grass or grass hay-based diet or formulated to balance an alfalfa or alf, you know, hay diet. And so those, you know, those tend to be broad spectrum. They have the vitamins and minerals that you need for those forage-based diets. And so those are things that I, you know, you see those as a feed form, as a ration balancer, sold in 50-pound bag with a one, two-pound serving size. You also find them as a supplement with more of a three, four-ounce serving size. So that, that would be my preference. You may need additional vitamin E and selenium depending on your horse and how hard they're working. Um, and I'm a big advocate of working with your veterinarian to draw blood and actually check your horse's vitamin E and selenium levels if that's something you're concerned about. And then if you need more beyond what you're getting from that kind of product, then you can add some additional vitamin E and selenium as needed rather than increasing the dose of the broad spectrum product. Because if you do that, now you're kind of giving even more zinc and even more copper that you probably don't need while you're trying to get the vitamin E and selenium that you do need. Hopefully that makes sense. Okay. Dr. Tunis, our next question is from Stash in Missouri, and Stash wants to know if the NASC logo legitimizes a product, a brand, or a manufacturing company. That's a great question, um, and I'll just briefly, so NASC stands for the Animal Supplement Council. Um, it's a quality seal. It doesn't guarantee that the product is safe or effective or that one brand or company is you know, better than another. Um, however, it does give you the consumer some assurance that the product was a properly manufactured, that what it says is in it is actually in it. So when you look at the label and it says it has, you know, 50, you know, HA or you know, 10 grams of MSM, that will actually be in there um, and does not contain full levels of contaminants. Um, so there is certainly a, it is a quality seal um, from the perspective of the product itself. Um, the, the identity of the product, the purity, the strength, um, the composition, you know, how it's put together, it's been verified through an independent third-party testing. So products that carry the NASC, the NASC seal have been through third-party testing. And then beyond that, the manufacturer also has to kind of jump through some hoops. Um, they actually have to go through a comprehensive facility audit. It's, it's very intensive. Um, they have to document quality control and production procedures. Um, so they're really guaranteeing supply chain quality, like, you know, where are they getting their ingredients from? How do they know that the MSM they're getting is good quality MSM? All those things have to be um, verified if you're a member of NASC. Um, the label, 
They have rules about how the label has to be laid out. They have to follow standards that were developed in combination with the FDA, Center for Veterinary Medicine, and also the American Association of Feed Control Officials. Um, on an annual basis, they submit their products to a third-party testing um, to ensure the label claims are accurate. That's why you know what's in there is actually in there. And um, monthly, they report adverse events to the National Adverse Event Reporting System. So if you feed a product with an ASC seal on it and you feel it has some negative effect on your horse and you phone the company and you share that with the company, they are required to put that into this NARES database. Um, and then lastly, they have a manual annual training that the members go through provided by NASC. So it's more of a quality seal than it doesn't, doesn't guarantee you that the product works. Um, but it does guarantee you that it is of a certain quality. So the companies are self-selecting themselves into that certification. Is that correct? Right. So the member companies pay, um, they pay a membership fee to be part of NASC. Um, and then, as I said, they go through this auditing, you know, third-party auditing process. Their facilities are checked. Um, and they they have to have their products tested and their labels approved by by the so overarching NASC organization. Uh, Dr. Watts, our next question is for you, and it's from Bernadette in South Carolina, and it's it's the big joint supplement question. Bernadette wants to know what listed ingredient should you look for in a joint supplement that's going to work for your horse. Yeah, another great question. There's so many joint supplements out there, and many of them are expected to be doing different things. So I think the answer really is, what do you want the joint supplement to do? If you want the joint supplement to um, act as an anti-inflammatory, obviously you're going to pick a different supplement or a different list of ingredients than one that you want to be an antioxidant or another that you may want to be um, providing the building blocks of normal, healthy articular cartilage in the horse's joints. And so um, once you know, do I want the anti-inflammatory, then um, I, probably you'd want to pick a resveratrol-based product or possibly MSM, which may have some anti-inflammatory in addition to antioxidant. Um, if you want the building blocks of articular cartilage health, uh, you may pick something that's got glucosamine and chondroitin um, or uh, in combination with HA. Um, so I, I think it really depends on what you're expecting that joint supplement to do. So with all the different things that joint supplements can do, um, is it not safe to combine supplements? for your horse if you have one? I mean, so I am coming at this from as someone who has a, a horse with um, with hawk issues um, right. and yeah. injecting him and trying to keep him going. And there's all these different products that say all these different things. Um, is it okay to give them more than one of those or do you risk your horse's health by maybe giving them too many things? Right, I think if you're picking different supplements that have different ingredients and that different expected uh, effects in the joint, um, I think it makes perfect sense to combine them, actually. So I think in that horse with the hawk pain and hawk arthritis, um, based on the clinical trial I just finished, I, I think I'd add that horse on resveratrol every day. I absolutely would be interested to protect the articular cartilage that he has by also providing the building blocks so that horse could also get something that contains glucosamine and chondroitin. Um, we don't have the randomized clinical trial in naturally occurring disease to prove that that helps maintain articular cartilage health yet. Um, we still don't have it in people either, but it makes good sense and we have good evidence from in vitro data and lab animal species that by providing those building blocks you may maintain articular cartilage health longer term. So, so actually I think beyond it's safe, I think it makes a, a ton of sense to combine the different products that are expected to do different things. So um, I would add that it's probably your checking account that would stop you from giving them. It, that's exactly it. That's what I tell <laughs> clients all the time. I say, well, it really depends on how much you want to spend. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, we have another question for you, Dr. Watts. It's from uh, Fina in California, and she wants to know how much do uh, HA-fed supplements actually get utilized by the horse? Um, and then she also would like to know the same about glucosamine and chondroitin supplements in horses. Yeah, so a uh, great question that I hear a lot. Um, and I think there's conflicting evidence out there on the oral bioavailability of both HA and glucosamine and chondroitin. Um, and it probably has somewhat something to do with the different manufacturing processes. Um, the molecules in the HA product from one manufacturer are likely different from the molecules in another, and same for glucosamine and chondroitin. Um, but there, there is at least some evidence out there that both of those products can change outcome parameters in the horse. Um, so there was a really nice study um, from the group at Rudin Riddle in Kentucky, and they gave horses an oral HA supplement that had had surgery for a hawk problem again. Um, and they didn't, it was placebo controlled and randomized, and, and they found improved joint swelling. Uh, in the post-operative period following surgery to remove OCV fragments in the horses that had been on HA. So I think, you know, that, that kind of bypasses measuring the HA to show that it's bioavailable, but if you have it a treatment effect, it must um, be, be getting absorbed and affecting the horse in some way. So um, I don't think we have all the data, but we have at least enough to support that it's doing something in the horse. And Dr. Watts, for those who are listening who aren't familiar with HA, can you explain a little bit what that is? Uh, hyaluronic acid is um, a molecule that's naturally found in synovial fluid or joint fluid, and it's a lubricant, really. It's what gives joint fluid its viscous property or its thick jelly-like property. Um, and it's these lubricating and cushioning properties that um, HA or hyaluronic acid is performing in the joint fluid as well as in the articular cartilage itself. Um, in addition to that, um, by giving the horse uh, exogenous or HA that it hasn't made itself, so you're feeding it or injecting it, you may be stimulating that horse to make more of its own HA. So um, that may also help improve the characteristics of the joint fluid to be more lubricating, um, as well as that of the articular cartilage. We have a question from our live audience, and Dr. Tunis, I'm going to give this one to you. It's from Austin in Louisiana, and uh, he would like to know, how do you know if you are offering your horse too many supplements? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, I think if I, I don't know, I mean, I think if I look at, if I look at, when I look at diet and I, and I, you know, I see a digestive supplement and I see a hoof supplement and I see a calming supplement and I see a weight gain supplement and I, it, I might, whoa, okay, like, do we, do we really have all these problems? Like, what is the, what is the underlying issue here? And often what the underlying issue is, is the, the base diet is not providing the horse with his nutritional needs. Um, and so I try to simplify things and kind of get back to just, let's just meet the National Research Council requirements. Let's make sure we've got those trace minerals we were talking about earlier, the copper and the zinc. Um, those are both vital for hoof health. Let's make sure that, you know, we're meeting the magnesium requirements, something that's often found in calming supplements. Um, let's make sure that, uh, you know, how are we feeding the horse? How's our, how is our management of this horse? You know, could that be contributing to digestive uh, stress issues, you know, gastric ulcers, those kinds of things? You know, are we feeding it the way a, you know, the horse is designed to eat? Is digestive anatomy and physiology? Are there changes we could make there that instead of trying to put a Band-Aid on it with a digestive supplement, could we actually perhaps fix the problem by changing how we manage this horse? So I try to kind of step back and and simplify things. Um, oftentimes people get a little concerned when, for example, they've been feeding a common one, if they've been feeding a hoof supplement because the horse hasn't got great feet um, and they need more hoof growth and they want stronger hoof wall growth and I take their hoof supplement away and um, we often go to feeding something like a ration balancing feed 
which at the end of the day ends up actually providing more copper, more zinc, more quality protein than they were getting from their hoof supplement. Um, and so we've actually fixed those underlying dietary issues that were potentially causing the horse to have the poor quality hoof growth and requiring the hoof supplement. But by, by kind of taking the whole sort of holistic, looking at the whole diet, in my opinion, I feel like we're actually improving the horse's overall health, not just its feet, if that makes sense. So I think if you're, um, you know, if you've got supplements coming in from multiple different things, um, that's a kind of it's time to sort of step back and just kind of say, okay, well, why why do I feel I have all these problems? Why do I, you know, is there a way I could address these in a more kind of overarching way and, and remove some of these products and simplify things? Sometimes, you know, sometimes I actually end up adding several products. Sometimes you know, if you come to me and all you feed is hay, then I'm very likely going to recommend a couple of things to you. So you might go away with feeding a few more things than you were. So it's not about, you know, only feeding one or two things. It's about, you know, feeding as simply as possible and getting the job done you need to get done. I think that's a great point. I love hearing that just getting a balanced diet um, that's meeting all the requirements is important. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I done this, for example, the joint supplements. Um, I mean, people say to me all the time, do I recommend joint supplements? I have nothing against joint, against joint supplements. But copper is required for collagen formation. Manganese is important for chondroitin sulfate formation. And I think we often forget that these ingredients that are in joint supplements, the glucosamine, the chondroitin sulfate, the horse makes these himself. Absolutely. These, these, yeah. these, co these compounds exist in the horse's joints. And by providing a balanced diet, you're helping that horse have all the building blocks he needs to make his own chondroitin sulfate and have his own good quality collagen. So to me, it seems like a false economy to be feeding a diet that is deficient in these key nutrients and then feeding a joint supplement, you know, that's costing you two or three dollars a day, perhaps, right. you know, get your base diet fixed. Um, and then if you want, you know, feed your joint supplement as well. I'm not against joint supplements. I just think it's a, a falsehood to kind of have a badly balanced diet with some glaring holes in it and then be feeding all these things to try and fix problems. So what are some potentials for toxicity with supplements then, Dr. Tooney? Is, is it possible to actually make your horse sick by putting too many of, of a good, or too much of a good thing into your horse? Yeah, I mean, I think you certainly, I mean, there are times where, you know, for example, selenium is a, a big one, right? Um, and the, in reality, there's a safer margin of error with selenium than many people are very afraid of selenium. Um, and actually, there's a little more margin of error there than, than many people think, but it is toxic at a far lower concentration than a lot of your other minerals. And in fact, your other minerals generally aren't toxic. It's more that if you feed exceptionally high amounts of zinc, for example, um, you know, it might outcompete the absorption of another mineral. So these minerals will have relationships with each other and their ability to be absorbed and utilized by the body is somewhat dependent on the um, on the levels that are present in the diet and one of the things that to kind of put that in perspective for people in, in something they've probably heard of before is calcium phosphorus ratio so many people understand that the calcium phosphorus ratio in the diet that you need you must have more calcium than phosphorus and ideally you've got about one and a half to two times more calcium in the diet than phosphorus um, and that's because it impacts absorption and utilization and and ultimately it can negatively affect bone health if you get that wrong um, so it's not so much that it's toxic, that you're going to create a toxicity, you're just going to create an imbalance, which then may have, um, you know, negative effect. I mean, zinc, copper, manganese, they have, you have to feed a lot of those to really create a toxicity, but you could quite easily create an imbalance that might have some kind of negative effect on your horse. Um, and that's something I see when people combine products um, a lot, uh, they're doubling up on things. Oh. And then, like if, if, you know, if, if nothing else, it's bad for your pocketbook because even if it's not bad for your horse, there's only so much they need and can use, and the rest is going to be excreted in urine and feces. So um, it's just a waste of money. Okay. And so, Dr. Watts, as a surgeon, do you ever or often see the results of these imbalances on on your operating table? Um, I suppose you could you could say that I do when we're operating OCD or osteochondritis, desiccans in, in foals. Um, so that's a developmental problem with articular cartilage that is related to copper 
and other nutrients in the diet as well as over nutrition so so yes i think so mm -hmm. yeah and i've uh, i've worked i was gonna say I've, I've worked with a couple of veterinarians at uc davis on horses that have come in with unusual lamenesses that have ultimately been pinned back to the horses being hyperparathyroid because their calcium phosphorus is not where it needed to be so, Dr. Tunis, our next question is from Sue in North Carolina, and it's going back to this question of selenium. She says that her inactive older geldings get hay, which is low in selenium, and a, a ration balancer with one milligram of selenium. Do they need extra selenium? And it looks like her, her hay comes from New York. Right. That's really going to depend on your horse and, you know, so obviously her horse is an older inactive gelding. Um, if it were a more active horse, performance horse, it might need more than one milligram. So looking at the requirement uh, for horses at rest, it ranges from about 0.8 milligrams for a 900-pound horse up to about 1.3 milligrams for a 1,400-pound horse. So I don't know how big her horse is, but that's sort of the range, right? So one milligram is sort of right in the middle there. Um, so depending on the size of the horse, um, the type of selenium that's in that product, selenium yeast is better absorbed than sodium selenite. Um, so that can have an impact on ultimately what ends up being absorbed. Um, and then also what the selenium level is in your hay. And again, you know, the is the hay coming from it, it, New York? It's probably on the lower end um, than it would be if it's coming from in the middle of the country. The thing that I would suggest you do is, as I mentioned earlier, get your vet to pull some blood and look at serum selenium levels. And then you'll know whether or not the diet you're feeding is giving your horse the selenium that it needs. And to use, you know, use that blood work to tell you whether or not you need additional selenium or not. And while you're at it, I would do vitamin E at the same time. Um, uh, Dr. Watts, our next question is for you, and it's from Lisa in Ohio. And Lisa wants to know if MSM works as a joint supplement. Uh, so MSM, it stands for methyl sulfamethane. I, I'm, yeah, that's right, MSM. And um, it's, I guess, touted to be an antioxidant. Um, uh, I don't think it's as popular as it used to be, although still a lot of horses are fed MSM. I don't know of a ton of evidence to show that it has a, a clinically measurable effect in the horse. I, I think there were some papers from Europe that are looking in show jumpers on oxidant stress, and so they fed MSM and um, then uh, basically at, looked at how, how much oxidant stress that horse was undergoing. And um, the show jumpers that were on the MSM looked to have fewer harmful effects from exercise, and we know that happens every time we exercise that there is oxidative damage, um, and that oxidative damage is pro-inflammatory. And so they saw less evidence of that oxidative damage in the, in the show jumpers that were being fed MSM. So it probably does have some effects um, and may be helpful to horses that are exercising very hard. Now, that's not specific to the joint for sure. So if, as far as a joint supplement, I, I don't know of anything that shows a long treatment effect, but certainly... Um, treating a horse's oxidative damage is going to help it when it's um, performing at the highest level. We have a question from our live audience for you, Dr. Tunis, and it's from Lisa, and she wants to know if you can or should add chia seeds to a horse's diet, and if so, how much should you give them? Yeah, absolutely. You can add chia seeds to a horse's diet. It's a great source of plant-based uh, omega-3 fatty acids. Um, you can feed it the same way you would feed any other, like like flax, for example. I, mean, I generally do about a cup, uh, which is about four ounces a day. Um, but it's not really any different than feeding flax, although it is, I find, generally more expensive. Um, the benefit, the big difference is, is that the shell on chia is, is um, not as hard. So you don't need to grind chia, and you can feed flaxseed whole too, um, but you will find some of the flax doesn't get digested because the shell on the flax is, is extremely sort of resistant to, uh, you know, if you don't chew it, it uh, doesn't get digested quite so well. Um, so that's a big benefit to chia. Nutritionally though, 
they're pretty much exactly the same. So I don't know whether financially it makes, you know, it's, it's a big difference. I mean, you'll certainly spend a lot more money feeding chia than you would say feeding ground flax. Um, so, but yeah, absolutely you can feed chia. So Dr. Tunis, what would be some of the benefits of feeding an omega-3 supplement like a chia or a flaxseed? They help support a healthy inflammatory response because of the omega-3 fatty acids in them. So, um, you know, there's been a little bit of research in horses looking at what happens when you supplement more omega-3 um, in the diet. And what we find is it actually changes the fatty acid composition of cell uh, membranes. And then that affects how those cells react to um, inflammatory uh, stimuli. So... Um, Plant-based omega-3s, there is some uh, data showing that they're beneficial. Um, feeding EPA and DHA directly may be of more benefit because ultimately your plant-based omega-3 fatty acids are going to be converted to EPA and DHA. The question is, is how well do they get converted? Um, so you can sort of bypass that conversion step by feeding EPA and DHA directly. And there's some good data um, looking at a range of different, you know, inflammatory situations and feeding uh, EPA and DHA, which typically comes from fish oil. Um, you can also get DHA from algae-based um, products. The pro and I see a lot of products on the market with EPA and DHA in it. And unfortunately, not very much EPA and DHA. So when you look at the research that was done in EPA and DHA sources, it typically, you know, the amount of EPA and DHA being fed is in gram quantities, you know, five, six grams of EPA and DHA total a day. A lot of the products that are out there that have EPA and DHA in them, a lot of the supplements, you're looking at milligram quantities, you know. Sometimes as little as 25 milligrams, I've seen products with, you know, 25 milligrams of DHA. That, you know, it's a huge, it's order of magnitude less than, um, than, the, than the data of, of the, one, you know, one gram is a thousand milligrams. So if the research has been looking at sort of five, six grams or five or six thousand milligrams and these products are providing you with 2,500 milligrams, are you going to see the same results they saw in the research? I don't know. So our next question is for Dr. Watts, and it's about an injectable. Uh, Kathy in New York wants to know if it's worthwhile to give Adequan on a monthly basis after giving the recommended initial series of the injections. Yeah, that's a good question. So Adequan, we all are very familiar with. It's been around a long time, and it, it almost doesn't fit in this in this session because it's not really a supplement. It is an FDA-approved medication. Um, which means it's had to undergo and prove not only safety, but efficacy data. Um, but um, because of what it is, uh, essentially a chondroitin sulfate that's been polysulfated, uh, I guess it does fall in the supplement category, and certainly people think of it as a joint supplement. Um, so uh, as, as uh, Kathy pointed out, the seven-shot series is what's recommended and is on the label. So you give that, and then many people will follow up with just giving the, the Adequan shot once a month. Um, I don't know that it's been um, shown to, to not be effective when you give it once a month, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to give it once a month. Um, it's a diester ring of chondroitin sulfate, and the, the company has... Um, come up with a way to add extra sulfur molecules. And so that's where the polysulfated and the polysulfated glycosaminoglycan comes from. And these sulfur um, molecules are the reason that it's effective. So the chondroitin sulfate um, diester ring that is adequan goes into the cartilage and then releases those sulfurs and those are incorporated into the horse's own building of chondroitin sulfate and keratin sulfate in normal articular cartilage. That whole process, after you inject the adequan, is, has happened and the horse has urinated out the remaining parts of the adequan injection 96 hours later. Um, so if you want to have a long-lasting effect from that adequan, that would mean you need to give it twice a week. Um, which, you know, money has come up quite a few times and obviously that gets really expensive. Um, giving an adequan shot 
um, twice a week. So for lots of people, and, and unfortunately I don't have signs to prove that this is effective, but what I'll recommend is if you know your horse is going to have a really difficult um, May, you're going to have a big clinic or you're going to a, several competitions or a really big competition or you know your horse is going to be working harder than usual, I might start that Adequan series of twice-weekly injections two or three weeks before that event or um, increased exercise. Carry it on through whatever the, whatever the event is and then follow up for two or three weeks following it so that any articular cartilage damage the horse um, has suffered just as a part of normal wear and tear, normal exercise-related um, injury, the horse has a, um, a leg up and to help heal that articular cartilage injury um, on its own. So, so I guess, no, I, I don't think it's worthwhile to do it once a month. Um, and I think if, if you can afford once a month, then you could do twice a week for a few weeks and then give the horse a few months off. Dr. Tunis, I'm going to give the next question to you. It's from Wendy in our live audience, and she wants to know if there are any supplements that she could use to support her Missouri Fox Trotter that has uh, equine asthma. Yes, um, actually, it takes us right back to that conversation about the um, the healthy inflammatory response support provided by some of the omega threes. Um, there is a there is a little bit of research showing that um, supplementing omega three fatty acids can help horses that uh, suffer from um, uh, um, equine asthma. Um, so, so it's great actually opportunity. I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, I wish I just said this earlier. <laughs> now I get to say it. <laughs> I was thinking. So you know, going back to the, one of my general recommendations about omega threes. If you have a healthy horse with no kind of obvious known inflammatory issues, I tend to go with plant-based um, omega-3s. If you're battling a, you know, some known inflammatory issue, that's when to me it makes sense to kind of go with the more expensive big gun uh, EPA, DHA direct sources of omega-3 fatty acid. So for a horse that um, is suffering from equine asthma, I would definitely um, be looking more at those EPA, DHA sources. And there actually is a research study done on a product that is commercially available on the market that was shown to improve, uh, uh, you know, respiratory health for horses with equine asthma. And so there is, it is out there and research was done on it. So there is some, um, there's actually some science, which is unusual in the supplement world. <laughs> Our next question is for Dr. Watson. It's from Rose in New York. And Rose wants to know, is it okay or when is it okay to give your horse supplements without talking to your vet first? Well, I'm going to address this question um, under the assumption that she's referring to joint supplements. <laughs> um, and uh, I think it's okay as long as you, there's no overt lameness that is not diagnosed. Um, so if you're just trying to give your horse a little health, heck, extra healthy edge for, for his or her joints um, and you're just trying to do it in a prophylactic manner, absolutely pick one and, um, and do that for your horse. But if your horse has a lameness that hasn't been diagnosed, um, then, then I think you may be doing your horse a disservice to say, well, I'm going to spend the money on the supplement rather than figure out what's going on because many times it may be not what you think and your veterinarian can help you identify what it is and get you on an appropriate um, treatment regimen that's going to help your horse resolve that lameness um, and be a better athlete and a better partner to you. Can I just and chime in there quickly with something too? Yeah, just with, yeah Because, I mean, people come to me too and they say, you oh, know, my horse, I really want a calming supplement or, you know, I need a digestive supplement. And I think it's important that um, you step back and, and you kind of try to figure out, well, why do I need a calming supplement? Have you ruled out pain? You know, is the horse reactive because it's in pain? I've worked with a number of horses that had quite poor behavior, and it actually ended up that they had uh, a condition known as polysaccharide storage myopathy, and it actually hurt them to work. Um, you know, they were suffering from muscle pain while they were working, and so, yeah, there was some pretty bad behavior. And, 
You know, so I think you really need to try and figure out why is that horse misbehaving? Does your saddle fit properly? Is there a bitting issue? Um, none of these things are going to get fixed by feeding a calming supplement. Similarly, with a digestive supplement, um, you know, what is the cause of the horse having digestive issues? You know, try to actually fix the underlying problem rather than, you know, reaching a supplement. And that often involves getting your veterinarian involved. Um, our next question I'm going to give to both of you, I think Dr. Tunis, if you want to start, and then Dr. Watts, if you have anything to add. It's from Judy in Ontario, Canada, and Judy wants to know if a hoof supplement will help improve a horse's uh, thin soles. So Dr. Uh, Tunis, do you want to start on that one? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely had clients whose horses have had thin soles, and when we've addressed um, some of the underlying you know, nutritional issues that they had, some of the key deficiencies that we talked about earlier, they've seen an improvement in overall health, hoof quality. Um, and part of that is because, you know, those, those, that zinc that, and the copper that you tend to find is a little low in your forages um, is a key uh, nutrient for hoof health. Similarly, methionine is a sulfur-based amino acid. That, the sulfur in that amino acid is, is vital for hoof health. And again, if you're feeding a, um, a hay, grass hay-based diet, uh, you may find that you need a little, you know, source of better quality protein. And so some of those uh, essential amino acids can be beneficial there. Um, and I and I'd love to hear, you know, um, Ashley's thought on on it too from a from a sort of veterinary standpoint, because I do think that there's for some horses, yes, you'll see an improvement in sole depth um, with improved diet. But I do think there is a large part, too, that may A, be genetic, and B, also be um, how the horse is shod. Yeah, absolutely. The farrier plays a huge role in, in having good, regular farrier care for your horse's feet, that with appropriate shoes if the horse is shod, um, or an appropriate trim if the horse is barefoot, um, it is probably the most important thing. I think most, I think of when I think of a horse that has thin soles, oftentimes, no matter what you do, they are always going to be thin soled. You just need to shoe them in a way that um, is going to be the most supportive to them. Where diet and supplements come in, I think when they're deficient, um, like we've talked about several times tonight, um, improving that either with a supplement or balancing the diet can improve the speed with which the foot grows, but I don't think it changes the foot conformation. So it's not going to change the thinness of the sole. Um, it's not going to change like the shelliness of the walls, if you will. Um, but if the foot is growing faster, um, you can um, reset them more frequently. It might be helpful to them if the horse is shod. And then of course, if they're, if they're growing foot a little more quickly than if it's getting rubbed off because they're barefoot, um, they're not going to get as uh, short in the wall and thin in the sole just from normal wear on the ground as quickly. So, so I do think it can help, but I think what the horse has is what you've got to work with and that your farrier is very important. Right. Diet, diet can help your horse be the best he can be, but he is limited yeah. by his genetics. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Um, we have a question for Dr. Tunis from our live audience. Uh, Kathleen wants to know if you recommend uh, supplementing horses with uh, psyllium to prevent sand colic, and does a seven-day purge every month make sense? Um, there's, you know, there's, there's a little bit of research out there on psyllium. Um, and what I recall, it's been a little while since I've read it, but I seem to recall that psyllium with mineral oil was more effective than psyllium on its own. Um, so um, I, I don't think that there is, I mean, personally, if you're living in a sandy area, if you're concerned about sand, and it's not just sand either, it's just dirt, right? I mean, it's, uh, we say sand colic, but the reality is it's just, you know, any kind of soil dirt that gets in the digestive tract. Um, I don't see any harm in adding psyllium, and it may, may be a benefit. Um, a lot of people swear by it. Um, but if I was going to do it, I'd be looking for a psyllium with added mineral oil. And uh, Dr. Watts, I don't know if you have anything to add there. Uh, no, it's certainly out of my wheelhouse, but I, I suppose keeping the horse away from the sand while they're eating, so feeding right. them on a mat or in a stall or wherever is probably the most helpful thing. And then when they're turned out on fields that have a sandy base, that's harder to do. Um, 
and I, I do know that what we tell people is if you're going to use psyllium to try to clear sand, you can't do it every day. Um, I don't know if that's just something we say or something we know based on research, but, um, but, it, but it is widespread thought that if you're going to feed psyllium, you do it once a day for seven days, and then they get three weeks off, and that that is more effective at clearing sand. We have a question from Denise in our live audience, and it's a question about a horse with PSSM1. Uh, she wants to know if feeding DMG would help. Uh, Dr. Tunis, do you want to jump in on that one? DMG. Um, the type 1, that one, it's, gosh, it's caught me off there. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm getting, not familiar with... Dumped. <laughs> I'm I'm not familiar with the DMG, um, but what recommendations do you it's have? Di, I think it's dimethylglycine. Dimethyl okay, I think is DMG. Yeah. So. Do you do you have any recommendations for uh, feeding PSSM horses and and supplementing them? Yeah, the um, again, it's important to know whether you're dealing with type one or type two. They're quite different mechanisms. Um, recent research has shown that they are. It is a different mechanism. Um, the type 1 horses have the genetic defect in the GYS1 gene, and um, they really need to be on a low-starch, low-sugar um, diet. And one of the biggest things I think I see in horses with the PSSM1 is that people kind of go to just sort of feeding a couple of pounds of alfalfa pellets and two cups of corn oil sort of thing. And, and I've, I've had a lot of luck with these horses um, if, if they don't need calories, that you don't have to feed them fat. A little bit of fat can definitely be a benefit, but I think the mistake people make is they think, oh, PSSM type 1, low starch, low sugar, they have to have fat. And really they need fat if they need calories. A lot of the type 1 horses actually tend to be pretty easy keepers, and, and extra calories is not often an issue that they really need. They're able to maintain their body weight just pretty well on that low NSC forage-based diet, and so they don't need a whole lot of extra calories, in which case, you know, just going with a low calorie, low sugar, low starch, low NSC ration balancer, um, so you're getting all the vitamins and minerals and everything you need, and then a little bit of oil, um, they do very well on that. You have to be a little bit careful not to go overboard with the oil, or you just end up with a fat, a fat PSSM horse, <laughs> which is also not ideal. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, we're down to about seven minutes left, and we still have several uh, really great questions I'd like to get to. So I think we're going to do a little bit of a rapid-fire round here, if you guys don't mind. Um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so are we ready? Uh, Dr. Watts, uh, Rick in Iowa, Iowa has a horse that's on Phyrococcib, uh, which is working for the horse's pain for arthritis. Would it be reasonable to add devil's claw in also for inflammation? Um. Hmm, devil's claw. Well, I I think, I don't know of any evidence that it does anything in the horse. I know in people, there have been several papers that have shown no effect. Um, so that would certainly speak against using it. Um, the other thing is, is, if this is a competition horse, he would need to check with whoever the organizers are. I know that um, we were talking earlier, um, USCF considers devil's claw a banned substance. So you'd want to make sure of that, and that's probably true for any supplements when you're using them in competition horses, is to make sure that um, it's not banned and it's not going to get you in trouble with something um, that you bought at the feed store. Dr. Tunis, our next question is for you. It's from our live audience. Anne wants to know how you would recommend getting that extra shiny, beautiful coat on your horse. Um, definitely making sure that all your base diet is where it needs to be. Again, you know, that uh, the coat color, I see a lot of people feeding products that maintain coat color, and that uh, not always, but sometimes is, you know, linked to the uh, trace mineral profile in the diet. So I've had people's horses change color in three weeks pretty radically when they've improved the overall base diet. Certainly having some fatty acids in the diet um, is beneficial to helping with coat sheen. Um, if you're going to add some oil or some kind of fat source to the diet just to get a shiny coat, 
I would do something that has a good omega-3 profile so you get the added benefit of some anti-inflammatory support um, as well. So you kind of get you know double whammy there by two for one with your oil if you're adding, you know, if you're one of those people that adds a glug glug of oil but shine on the coat, you know, add something with a good omega-3 profile rather than corn oil. I would stay away from corn oil just because it, it doesn't offer you any omega-3s. It's not going to help you with that anti, anti-inflammatory support at all. Um, and then after that, um, lots of curry combing. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big believer in elbow grease. <laughs> it pulls the oil through the, you know, pulls that oil that you have there through the coat and really puts that final copper penny shine on them. Okay. Uh, Dr. Tunis, we have a question from Cindy in Wisconsin, and Cindy wants to know where horse owners can find and read research about supplements uh, that isn't related to um, a manufacturer of a product. Where where would you recommend finding that information? Yeah, that can be um, a little tricky. There are some you know good resources. I have to say, the horse does a fabulous okay. job of some yeah, of the research out there. <laughs> I have to say I'm that, right? Hint at it. <laughs> um, PubMed. So um, you know you can do searches in PubMed. You know throw the the term. Um, you know for example I sort of on to PubMed and throw DMG equine in the search field and kind of see if I could pop some research on DMG. Um, it is tricky. It is tricky. And I and uh, certainly oftentimes individual supplements are not researched, but the ingredients in them may be. So if you can't find research on an individual supplement, try looking at the, the guaranteed analysis and the list of ingredients and search on the active ingredients listed for that supplement and see if you can find any research on those individual ingredients. It may not be in horses. It may be other species. Um, and oftentimes we are extrapolating data from other species. You know, that's not ideal, but it's the reality of what we've got. Um, so that can be beneficial as well. But Pub, PubMed is, you know, looking for those ingredients and just um, at least you get a summary, you get an abstract, even if you don't get the whole paper. Yeah. And if you go to thehorse.com, we have a lot of archived information on there about different research studies that we've covered from either conferences or studies that uh, have come out in the journals. Uh, we try to summarize those in, in a way that they're readable for the horse owner. Um, sometimes those uh, scientific journals can be a little thick to read, <laughs> but um, if you go to thehorse.com, um, Dr. Tunis every week does a nutrition commentary for us and talks about a lot of these topics and different ingredients and, and nutrition for the horses. And if you're listening and you're interested in Dr. Watts's research, um, we I know we have coverage of it as well on thehorse.com. If you go and just search for for Dr. Ashley Watts's name, I'm I'm sure that will pop up. Um, we just have a few minutes left. One minute. So Dr. Tunis, one last one: probiotics and prebiotics. This is a question from <laughs> Sharon in Missouri. Um, you recommend them? I think if your horse is looking great on their diet, doesn't have any obvious digestive issues, digestive tract seems to be functioning fine, I don't think you really have a need for a pre or probiotic. If you're um, traveling a lot, diet's changing a lot, um, you think there's going to be some stress in that horse's life, yeah, maybe it makes sense to kind of help support the digestive tract a little. Maybe they've been on some antibiotics or what have you. I'm a bigger fan of prebiotics, which are ingredients that help support the already existing bacterial population than I am of probiotics. I haven't seen a lot of convincing data that um, probiotics, which are the live bacteria themselves, um, you know, I don't know, we have a lot of convincing data on probiotics in horses. There is a company that has a strain of bacteria that um, there may be a little bit of data there, but most of, you know, we don't have a lot of data on. Um, so I'm a bigger fan of prebiotics. There is some good data supporting prebiotics, especially live yeast and other yeast cell wall derivatives. Um, and so there's quite a lot of published data there. So that would be my preference would be to do a prebiotic. Unfortunately, just, to, just to add, you're looking for like 50 billion CFUs. I mean, that, the numbers are really important when you're looking at probiotics. A lot of things that have you know, 10 million coliform forming units, you know, extrapolated data from other species suggests we need to be up in the tens of billions if you want to get any effect. 
So unfortunately, we are out of time uh, tonight, um, but I want to thank both uh, Dr. Watts and Dr. Tunis for joining us and, and answering all these great questions that were turned in by everyone. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, it's been a great, great evening. Great questions. Yeah, really great questions. I also want to thank our sponsor, uh, Equithrive, which brought this event to you for free tonight. And finally, thank you to everyone who submitted questions and listened live. Um, I hope that you can join us in January, in the new year. Uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, so you want to breed your mare and answer some questions about looking for the right stallion and things you need to know if you're going to be breeding your mare this season. So until that comes up, uh, I'm Michelle with The Horse, and have a great night.